History of Persia is a Hopful Media podcast production. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Welcome everyone to the History of Persia this is episode 40, Heiresses to the Empire. And you thought I might finish with Star Wars references after 9. This was the last one, I promise. If you just started listening to this because it was the newest episode in your feed, and you haven't listened to episode 39, Rise of Achaemenaeus, you should probably go and listen to that first. This is the second episode in a two-part sequence on Achaemenid women, and the women of Darius's royal court in particular. I finished the last episode with Artazostra, one of Darius's daughters who married Mardonius, the son of Gabrius and young general who we followed on his reconquest of Thrace and Macedon. Like I said in episode 37, keep Mardonius in the back of your mind for now. Like most of Darius's wives and daughters, we know very little about Artazostra beyond her husband and parentage. There are at least a few specific anecdotes associated with her, but that's all I've got. I ended that episode by saying that her most important role in this podcast may just be that she is a good entry point into the three most important royal women or Dukshish, as they are known in the Elamite sources. As I said last time, Dukshish refers to a whole range of female royals in Achaemenid documents. 
the various people English speakers might separate into princesses, various types of queen, and more distantly related royal cousins are all Dukshish and Elamite. That said, the three ladies we're talking about today were probably all what we would call queens of some sort. The big three queens in the court of Darius were all, possibly, direct relatives to Artazostra. Her mother, Artistone, Irdabama, a powerful woman who we don't fully understand, and her aunt, Atossa. We actually have no idea if these three were the most powerful and important, or if the ranking I just gave is at all accurate. That's just the impression we can glean from our surviving sources, particularly the Persepolis Fortification Archive tablets. These three women have several things in common. Obviously, they had Darius. The whole point of these episodes is that they were somehow related to the royal house. They were also independently powerful, wealthy, and influential. Whether that was because of their heritage, their relationship to the king, or their influence on future policies varies from woman to woman. All three of them are associated with powerful sons and illustrious heritage, but it was a slightly different case for each of them. All three also commanded a collection of estates called Ulhi. These estates appear to cover a wide range of settlements around the Persian heartland, ranging from a fortified palace and its environs to farming plantations, the verdant gardens known as paradises, and possibly even whole towns where the royal women took on the role of landlord or local governor. Naturally, these women had great social status, but their estates shed some light on exactly how we should think about Persian women. Erdabama, Artistone, and Atossa are all documented giving orders to large workforces, ordering huge quantities of food for rations, traveling around the empire to visit different estates, and generally acting independently within the economy of Persepolis and the surrounding region. I cannot stress this enough, these were not cloistered women hidden from the world in a physical harem, but powerful economic actors in their own right. Part of the harem, in the sense that they were both women and part of Darius's household, but not the shut-ins of popular culture. So, without further ado, first comes Irdabama. As I said, Irdabama was clearly powerful, but we don't fully understand who she was. She isn't associated with any particular narrative, and is entirely unknown to our Greek sources, despite her immense status in the Persian heartland. If her name sounds kind of odd to you, that's because I usually use the Greek names for the Achaemenids. They're usually more search engine friendly, and they're what you're most likely to encounter in books, if you do some research beyond this show. In Persian, she was probably called something like Artabama, but that's just a speculative reconstruction. Irdabama is known only by her Elamite name, and only from the Persepolis tablets. Of the major landholders documented in the Persepolis archive, 
she was second only to Darius himself. Her relationship to the king is unclear. To be so powerful, she must have been closely tied to the royal house, but she is never called Dukshish. Instead of the generic name for royal women, Irdabama is called either Abamush or Abakanash. Obviously, those terms are related, but we don't actually know what they mean. It seems to have put her on equal or greater footing than the royal women, but we can't figure out what the real difference was. It very well could intersect with either of the leading theories about Irdabama's identity. While most of Darius's wives, and obviously his daughters, were either descendants of Cyrus or part of Cambyses' pre-existing harem, neither the king's mother nor his first wife were part of the royal family before Darius forced his way onto the throne. It could be that Abamush was a way to differentiate that status. Or, if she was the queen mother, I guess it could just mean queen mother, but that would be atypical as the Achaemenids go. Wouter Henkelman of Leiden University theorizes across several papers that she was either the king's wife or his mother. At least once, he suggests that Darius's wife is more likely, but he didn't explain that. On the other hand, I discussed how the queen mother was perceived to be exceptionally influential in Greek sources, which may account for Irdabama's particularly extravagant wealth. If you go to Encyclopedia Eronica, still freely available online as eronicaonline.org, you can look up Darius and quickly discover that his mother's name was Rodagune. Even accounting for Greek transliteration, that's obviously not the same as Irdabama, or Artabama. You'd think that means case closed, but the debate remains open. The sources cited by the encyclopedia are all dictionaries or encyclopedias themselves. I dug deep and found one possible explanation. The Book of Iranian Names by Ferdinand Justi, more commonly called by part of its German title just the Nomen Book, cites a passage in Theseus. This fragment of Ctesias is recorded by a 9th century Byzantine priest named Photius in his Bibliotheca. Like Ctesias, Photius' work only survives in fragments, and to top it off was written in Latin, so it doesn't preserve Ctesias' original Greek. Not that it matters, because I couldn't actually find the Latin version of the text to reference myself. In one line, discussing Xerxes' children, it says that Xerxes named one of his daughters after his own grandmother. But every modern English translation I can find says that this was Amatus, Theseus' name for Cyrus the Great's Median wife. Rodagune is another daughter listed in the same line. So maybe the reference to Rodagune in Encyclopedia Eronica's sources is a 19th century mistranslation of that one obscure line that has impressive staying power. 
But I digress. We should get back to Irdbama. If she was not the Queen Mother, then she must have been one of the quote-unquote Queen's consort. It's entirely possible that she is an otherwise unknown wife of Darius. Or even maybe a concubine. I can't find a single source speculating that she could be a reference to any of Darius's wives we already know from the Greek tradition. That said, I would personally speculate that Irdabama could actually be the unnamed daughter of Gobrius mentioned by Herodotus. In the last episode, I described how Darius was married and had a few sons with the daughter of Gobrius, one of the seven conspirators who assassinated Bardia. Outside of her male relatives, we don't hear much about this woman, not even her name. But maybe, and just maybe, she was Irdabama. It would make sense for Darius's first wife to be one of the most significant women. But of course, I have no other evidence for this, and am just speculating. Gobrius himself is mentioned a few times in the Persepolis tablets, but never with Irdabama so far as I can find. Ultimately, her identity remains up in the air. So what else do we know? Ababush Irdabama is also one of only four people where the Persepolis archives describe food and wine being consumed before them. This is a complicated idiom to explain over a podcast, but the tablets regularly say that a large quantity of food was consumed or poured out before Darius, for example. The quantities are often huge, and the early translators of the Persepolis texts thought it referred to elaborate feasting. When a noble is mentioned when something is consumed before them, the assumption used to be that they were the host, so if something was consumed before Irdabama, she was hosting a feast. More recent work leans in a different direction. The quantities are sometimes too large, or too frequent, for even royal feasts. Instead, we now think that when something was consumed before Irdabama, it is some kind of difference to her in her role or rank as part of the imperial hierarchy. It seems that when things were consumed before the king, or anyone else whose name is substituted in place of Darius, they were acting as a royal surrogate. So when something is consumed before Irdabama, it is acknowledgement that Irdabama is a stand-in for Darius himself. This is just another piece of evidence for her importance, even if we don't understand what exactly it was. We have extensive catalogs of what exactly was consumed before Irdabama, as we do with basically everything else in the Persepolis archives. After all, that's what the Persepolis tablets are, receipts and lists of transactions, mostly the disbursement of food and provisions to various people. It would be ludicrously tedious and entirely unnecessary to list out all of the different shipments of grain, wine, food, and animals here. Suffice it to say that Irdabama received massive amounts of every provision imaginable. At times, she received roughly 10% of the quantities that were distributed to Darius himself. 
That sounds like a small fraction at first, but food consumed before Darius was being doled out to the entire court apparatus. Not just a few dozen royals and nobles, but the thousands of servants, administrators, and laborers that orbited around the royal house. Irdabama was receiving rations to support hundreds of subordinates. For perspective, she received over 1,000 quarts of wine, nearly 5,000 quarts of grain, 2,200 apples, and 255 goats and sheep for single orders. Her workers also are the only ones we know of to receive luxury rations in the form of ducks. Several dozen ducks were sacrificed at a temple and given to Irdabama by Pharnaces, Darius's cousin who acted as the governor or mayor of the palace in Persepolis. She could, and kind of did, feed an army. At her largest Olhi estate, Irdabama commanded several hundred underlings. At one, called Shulagi, she was waited on by several dozen, quote, servants and pages. At Tirazish, better known today as the city of Shiraz, she was in charge of a few hundred Kurtosh, conscripted laborers from elsewhere in the empire, including a large corps of Lycians from Anatolia. The difference in the workforce between Shulagi and Turazish may point to a difference in function. Shulagi, with its servants and pages, seems like it might have been more of a residential palace, while Turazish was clearly a large farming operation, kind of like a plantation. The workers are less well documented, but she also operated an estate called Nupishtash, which appears to have been some kind of fruit orchard. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. We know the names of several other estates, but less about who worked there or what kind of estates they were. Nukantish, Tamukan, Tikrash, and Kura are all places mentioned in connection with Irdabama. Whether these were administrative palaces, like a smaller version of Persepolis, farming plantations, or whole towns is hard to say. We know that each royal estate commanded a significant workforce of common men and women, and were provided with huge quantities of rations by the palace at Persepolis. Generally speaking, the Persepolis archives only deal with people and places in Parsa itself, and those trading resources with Persepolis from neighboring provinces. So we can guess that all of Irdabama's estates I just mentioned were in Parsa, or maybe the area we sometimes consider southern media. Obviously, she couldn't manage half a dozen estates spread out all across a province by herself directly, which is why she was supported by at least two stewards. They were given clay seals that allowed them to issue orders in Irdabama's name. They were named Karkish and Rashta. Karkish is a Persian name and is referenced with a few of the other Olhi. Rashta is specifically associated with the fruit plantation of Nupishtash. Rashta, in fact, used a seal that was a direct copy of an older Neo-Elamite design 
showing a woman on a throne. Whether that says something about his heritage, Erdabama's, or just the Persians in general is unclear, but it obviously points to some kind of Elamite connection. Her estates are not the only places where Erdabama passed near Persepolis. She, or her subordinates, received rations from the palace as they traveled to a variety of other places. Some we are familiar with, and others are just names. Persepolis, of course, is in there, as is Susa. So is Sharsunkuri, the fortress where Darius and his conspirators attacked and dethroned Bardia. There is also Hidali, Kandama, Liduma, and Tendari, all of which are less well-documented. More recently, evidence has sprung up to suggest that Erdabama's influence extended beyond Parsa and into Babylonia as well. This would make her the first known Achaemenid woman to control estates in Mesopotamia, but by no means the last. Clay tablets from Borsippa reference someone called the Apamu, receiving meat from local sacrifices during the reign of Darius. Wouter Henkelman suggests that Apamu is likely the Akkadian version of Abamush, Erdobama's unique title. If that is the case, then these sacrifices are probably just the first hint of a much larger estate managed by this mysterious woman. And despite all of this, her unique title, massive workforces, and extensive estates, if Irdabama really was Darius's first wife, then she was not his favorite. That distinction supposedly goes to Artazostra's mother, Artistine. Even though Irdabama was clearly the most powerful landowner, and despite all the power and reverence he personally attributes to Atossa, even Herodotus acknowledges that Darius preferred her younger sister. Artistine was a daughter of Cyrus the Great, but so far as I can tell, not caught up in the incestuous marriages of her other siblings. Artistine is, of course, her Greek name. The Old Persian has been reconstructed, and she probably referred to herself as Artistuna. Even though her name was never recorded in Persian, Artistine is probably the Achaemenid figure you are most likely to see called by a non-Greek form of her name. The Elamite version, Irtashduna, is so prolific in the Persepolis tablets that some papers don't translate her name to the more familiar Greek format. Despite the favoritism acknowledged by Herodotus, Artistine is a minor character in the Greek narrative of early Persian history. Thus, it came as a surprise to translators working on the Persepolis fortification tablets when Artistone's name rapidly outpaced that of her more famous sister. Artistone clearly commanded significant wealth and influence in the Persian heartland. Her ulhi were not as numerous as Irdabama's, and her workforce was not nearly as large. Likewise, the rations paid out to Artistone are significantly smaller than those paid out to Irdabama. That said, there are still massive quantities of food. Over 400 quarts of grain, 300 quarts of unprocessed grapes or raisins, 
300 quarts of wine, and more than 500 of beer. We hear about other things like a herd of 100 oxen, which might imply that one of her estates was pasture land. We know of three estates held in her name. Kuknakon, which is mostly unknown to us, Miranda, which could correspond to any number of modern and historic towns in western Iran called Maran today, and Matanan, which I've actually discussed before. Matanan came up all the way back in episode 16, Pharaoh Cambyses, because it was a palace built initially for the second great king. Cambyses conscripted laborers from Babylonian temples to build a palace in the northwestern part of Parsa, near a village of the same name. After he died and the chaos surrounding Bardia subsided, Darius granted the palace to Artistine, along with the town surrounding it, which likely housed all of the workers who maintained the Paradise Gardens and the plantation farm. By 498, Artistine was sharing control over Matanan with her son, Arsimes, Irsama, an Elamite. It's clear that Arsimes did not take over because Artistine continued issuing orders after 498, but by that point, the young prince was playing an active role in his mother's administration. Of course, much like Irdabama, these royals weren't managing the day-to-day -day affairs of their business alone. Really, how could they with estates spread out over great distances? They were also assisted by stewards named Shakinana and Datuka, as well as an overseer named Irtena. Of course, there were others, but those are the names that survive. There was also someone with the title of Hirakura, which is sometimes translated as commissioner. What exactly the Hirakura did, other than order rations like everyone else at Persepolis, is unclear, because Artistine's staff is the only context where we encounter the word. In fact, Artistine's records at Persepolis are the source of a couple of unique words. Not only do we see the unique title Hirakura, but also a unique and consistent spelling error. The word idu is the imperative command issue, as in, you must issue Artistine 300 quarts of wine. In most of Artistine's records at Persepolis, it is spelled differently than other instances of the same word in Elamite cuneiform. This points to Artistine having a specific personal scribe who wrote all of her letters to the administrators back at Persepolis, and may have used unconventional titles like Hirakura as well. Maybe he wasn't fluent in Elamite as he could have been, or maybe he was just kind of quirky. Either way, I think it's very cool to be able to single out an otherwise unknown individual in ancient history like that. Artistine's estates do seem to have one key difference from Irdabama's. They were needier. Most of the huge quantities of food and drink distributed to Irdabama are documented in the form of receipts for items being sent out. Only once did Irdabama send a letter to Persplies. Artistine sent eight letters asking for specific items. 
One way or another, we can probably explain this based on the size difference. Irdabama had significantly more land, people, and resources at her disposal. Perhaps that means her estates were a bit more self-sufficient, or could support one another without asking for more from Persepolis. Or maybe her status just ensured that Persepolis knew what she needed more accurately than they did for Artistine. It's equally possible that Artistine could give more attention to the individual needs and requests from her estates and subordinates because she didn't have nearly as many. Henkelman suggests an interesting possibility about Artistine's role in the wider royal family as well. At one point, Arsimis, undoubtedly still subordinate to his mother at Matanan, ordered rations specifically for his cousin, the royal woman Parmis. As I mentioned in the last episode, Parmis was the daughter of Bardia and one of Darius's more obscure wives. Personally, with only that information, I wouldn't have thought much of it. It doesn't seem strange to me that they would host one of their family members and another queen in Darius's harem at their own palace. Wouter Henkelman, though, extrapolates a much more dynamic theory. It is possible that Artistine actually took on the role of matriarch for the remaining Taspid family members in Parsa. It's clear that Darius married many of the royal women from Cyrus the Great's family after taking power as a way to secure his own presence on the throne and unite the so-called Taspids with his own Achaemenid clan. He doubled down on this by saying that they were one and the same, but it's clear that there was a perceived need to unite his family with theirs. Even if everything Darius said was true, he was only a distant relative. Even once this was done, the Taspids, including any undocumented cousins through Cyrus I and Cambyses I, could still have presented a significant block within the royal family. If Artistine took a leading matriarchal role over that faction in imperial court politics, then she may have been able to keep their interests aligned with Darius's. Of course, there are plenty of holes in this theory, the least of which is her sister Atossa. I routinely wish that I knew more languages. Even right in the middle of the US, I run into Spanish speakers all the time, and my social media always has a little Persian, Arabic, some Dutch and German. Rosetta Stone does help. It's the most trusted language learning program after all. It's also conveniently available on desktop or on the go as an app and has some really cool features that truly immerse you in the language you're learning. Just the first steps, like learning a new alphabet and some simple phrases, helped open new doors, and Rosetta Stone is a great choice as the trusted expert in this for 30 years and millions of users with 25 languages available to learn. 
They focus on fast language acquisition without English translations to help you learn, speak, listen, and think in your new language while building long-term retention. Their true accent speech recognition also gives feedback on pronunciation, which can be really important for languages like Persian, where how you say something is very important. And on top of being available for desktop and mobile, you have the option to download lessons and take them offline. This is also all available at a steal. You can get lifetime membership, all 25 languages, for 50% off. Don't put off learning that new language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, History of Persia listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today today. Traditionally, Atasa was understood to be the most powerful woman of her age, but the Persepolis archives clearly challenged that idea. She has also been portrayed as the elder sister through a combination of prominence and Artistine's apparent lack of a relationship with their brothers, though I've never actually seen any ancient source offering an opinion about that. As we'll see, Atossa may not have been nearly as powerful as the Greeks thought during Darius' time in power, and Artistine may have excelled in her position as the King of Kings' favorite. It's also possible that Artistine was an organizing force in Parsa, while her sister was based further away from their ancestral homeland. Those of you who are already familiar with the traditional story of the Persian Empire, largely based in Herodotus, may be surprised to find Atossa at the low end of the power structure. Called Atossa in Greek, she was probably calling herself something like Utotha in Old Persian, and the Elamite documents from Persepolis call her Udusa. This is the daughter of Cyrus the Great, who has been floating around in our narrative for decades now. I first mentioned her back in episode 14, and since then she's been all over the place in one way or another. She was one of Cambyses' sister wives, and was supposedly married to Bardia after his coup, though this may be a Greek misunderstanding of the harem which I described in the previous episode. After Bardia was assassinated, she was one of the many royal women married to Darius. Much like Artistine and Parmis, Darius was able to legitimize himself by marrying into the pre-existing royal family, repeatedly. Of all of the women I have discussed so far, Atossa is also the one who will remain with us as the narrative goes forward. Despite the previous marriages, Atossa's first child was Xerxes, the son of Darius who will succeed his father on the throne. She and Darius had at least two other sons who will come up in due course, and one daughter who I failed to mention with the other minor dukeshish in the last episode. This was Mondane, who isn't all that relevant now, 
but will be involved with some drama surrounding the Athenian general Themistocles later on. As a point of trivia more than anything else, Herodotus tells the story of Atossa suffering from a painful tumor in one of her breasts. The Greek physician Democides operated on the queen and removed the tumor in the first documented case of mastitis, and probably the first case of breast cancer ever written into the historical record. Democides himself is the subject of an interesting series of tell tales told by Herodotus, which are coincidentally the subject for the Patreon subscriber bonus episode this past month. In Greek and Roman sources, Atossa is a famously powerful figure. According to Herodotus, she provoked Darius to invade Greece purely so she could acquire Greek slaves to wait on her as servants. Likewise, she is portrayed as an all-powerful strings-puller who could even influence Darius's choice of successor and Xerxes' foreign policy in the future. Even before her name was well-known in Greece, the tragedian playwright Aeschylus portrayed the mother of Xerxes as a powerful figure in his play The Persians, although I should point out that this was more of a Queen Mother stock character than an actual description of Atossa specifically. Between Aeschylus and Herodotus, the logographer Hellonicus of Lesbos became the first Greek source to explicitly use Atossa's name when he described her as a particularly masculine woman in her political machinations and behavior at court. Despite her powerful and influential reputation in Greece, contemporary records in Parsa don't reflect the same situation. In the thousands of clay tablets from Persepolis, Atossa's name is mentioned only five times. Like most of the Persepolis records, these are mostly receipts and directions for rations. Two tablets document wine provisions, and another three talk about grain. All of them discuss the workers employed on her estate in some way. The subject matter itself says very little about Atossa. Most of the Persepolis tablets are receipts like that, and it is only rare that the content sheds much light on any actual anecdotes like it did with Artazostra traveling with Gabrius. Atossa's paltry five tablets stand in the shadow of dozens related to Artistine and Irdabama. Unlike either of the other two, there are no seals associated with Atossa, no clay stamps to issue official orders from a royal family member. Atossa must have had seals herself, because the tablets do mention her estate and workers and she was a high-ranking dukeshish, but no examples have been documented at Persepolis. Until recently, this has been the end of discussion on Atossa's presence in the Fortification Archive, a paltry few tablets that cast serious doubt on her real, historical power and heavily contradict the impression left by centuries of reliance on Greek sources. But as historians are wont to do, the issue of Atossa, reassessed in the 1980s to suggest that she wasn't as powerful as once thought, is being reassessed once again 
to suggest that we were too quick to judge the queen on the Persepolis archive alone. The other leading women of the Persepolis archive are clearly associated with specific estates. Atossa is consistently mentioned alongside a place called Artarantish, apparently an estate in the province of Hyrcania, and an administrative official named Kinadada. Kinadada and Artarantish are mentioned in other fragments without a mention of Atossa's name. In a 2016 paper titled Atossa Reenters, Dr. Matthew Stolper of the University of Chicago suggests that we should reinterpret those additional mentions of Artanantish as evidence for Atossa's estate. In some cases, Atossa's name is coupled with Antarantish using the same grammatical structure that Artistine's name is mentioned with in the estates in Parsa. Stolper argues that we should interpret all of the provisions of Antarantish as provisions and laborers for Atossa. That would raise her status in the Persepolis tablets significantly. It wouldn't quite outdo Artistine and Irdabama, but it would make her more of a competitor. Though Stolper doesn't argue this point, I also feel like I should point out that if Antarantish was in Hyrcania, then Atossa was based much further away from the centers of power than the other well-documented royal women, and may not have dealt with Persepolis as frequently. That, too, would help explain why she seems left out. So what does this mean? Is Atossa's commanding, influential, and powerful reputation a fabrication? A Greek legend to exemplify Persian decadence and femininity? Well, yes, it probably is that. There's absolutely no way for the Greeks to have known some of the personal details of Atossa, Darius, and Xerxes that they report on, but the image of Atossa isn't entirely baseless. The trick is that the men who helped enshrine her legend in Greek history, Herodotus, Hellenicus, Aeschylus, and so on, were all writing after Xerxes' invasion had been repelled by the Greeks. Any Persian source they may have used all suffered from the effects of hindsight and looking back on history through the prism of recent events. Atossa's reputation very well could have been that of an astoundingly powerful queen mother, but only after her son was on the throne. Prior to that, she was just one of several highly placed wives in Darius's family. Frustratingly, the actual dates of the Persepolis tablets cut out around the same point that I left the narrative. The last firm date we have from the archive is 493 BCE. Generally, scholars think that the tablets extend into the early phase of Xerxes' reign, but the bulk of them are from the middle of Darius's time on the throne. That alone leaves us with an imperfect picture of the Dukeshish whose lives were documented in that archive, and it complicates our understanding of Atossa more so. Hellenicus and Herodotus both suggest that Atossa played the role of kingmaker when Xerxes had to compete with his half-brothers for the throne. 
They say that her influence on Darius was so great that she was able to handpick her own offspring for the role of king. Herodotus takes it a step further and even argues that Atossa's own personal demands were enough to push Darius into his war with Athens. If you listened to the last eight or so episodes about that war with the Greeks, you'll notice right away that that is definitely not true, but it is definitely a sign of the power a Greek audience attributed to Atossa. In 2011, Hankelman argued that Xerxes was already the leading candidate to inherit his father's power by the mid-490s, about a decade before his actual ascendancy. He cites another of the Persepolis tablets in which Xerxes clearly has an unidentified administrative role in Parthia, which I'll discuss more in the next episode. He argues that Xerxes' rise to prominence before his father's death contradicts Herodotus' story enough to overrule it. I'm not entirely sure I buy that argument. Xerxes is hardly the only one of Darius' sons in a leadership position, and one of his half-brothers ruled the traditionally significant satrapy in Bactria. That said, the same tablet does support the idea that Atossa's fortunes were directly tied to those of her son. With an estate in Hyrcania, she was close to Xerxes' base in Parthia, if not actually in his territory. That might suggest that her status was closely tied to Xerxes' position as the first of Darius's sons after he became king. Truth be told, that was her most unique feature in the Greater Harem. Atossa was not Darius's first wife, nor was she the only daughter of Cyrus the Great, and we know she wasn't his favorite. Being Xerxes' mother was her tie to the imperial power structure. And of course, it's mostly the sons of Darius that will carry our narrative forward. Ultimately, despite their wealth and power, the wives of Darius will eventually fade into the background as a new generation of Persians takes center stage. Darius's family also lacked the incest that characterized Cyrus's children, so his daughters were married into the families of generals, advisors, and other grandees. That doesn't mean they contribute any less to the next generation, but every step away from the household of the king himself is a step away from the narrative documented in royal inscriptions and Greek histories. So in the next episode, we will turn our attention to the men of Darius's family, his ancestors, his brothers, and his numerous, numerous competing heirs. Until then, if you want more information about me or the podcast, you can find it at historyofpersiapodcast.com. There you can also find the Achaemenid family tree in several different versions, as well as my bibliography and all of the relevant maps for different episodes of the podcast. You can also find a support page with links to all of the different products that I occasionally plug in ads at the beginning of episodes, as well as links to Patreon and Lysium FM, where you can become a recurring subscriber and get access to bonus content. 
If you can't support the show financially, that's fine, because the absolute best way to support a podcast is to let people know about it. Go on social media and tell your friends that the History of Persia podcast is here. On Facebook and Instagram, it's the History of Persia podcast, and on Twitter, it's at History of Persia. You can also leave a review on any podcast platform that supports it. I always love to hear your feedback, whether it's good or bad. And of course, thank you all so much for listening to The History of Persia. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line. Prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1 800 Gambler in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com.